everything else is just a series of anxieties sandwiched upon fears. And, but the writing is the only space of freedom. This is Drafting the Past, a podcast devoted to the craft of writing history. I'm your host, Kate Carpenter, and in this episode, I am so delighted to be talking to novelist Nishant Bacha. Thanks for having me. Hold up. A novelist? Isn't this a podcast about writing history? I promise that it still is. But I'm excited to have the chance to talk to Nishant because after earning a PhD in history from Columbia University, he has instead focused on writing fiction. His debut novel, Mother Ocean, Father Nation, came out just a couple of weeks ago with Echo HarperCollins, and the research he did for his dissertation provides much of the historical context for the novel. I loved this book, and I was fascinated to learn more about how Nishant's career evolved. In this episode, we'll dig into the relationship between his PhD in history and his fiction writing, how he approaches research now, and much more. I had such a good time talking to Nishant about his work, and I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did, however you write about history. Well, I started writing for publication around 2011-ish, 2010-2011, I want to say. And I was living in the United Kingdom at the time, um, and I had finished like a one-year master's, and I had this whole summer where I was doing nothing before I moved to New York to go to graduate school. And for some reason, I submitted something for publication, and it was published on this website called The All, which no longer exists, but many writers pass through The All. And it was the first time I felt like, whoa, all these little things that I've been writing on the side actually have an audience. And of course, you know, a couple months later, it's like, I'm going to try a novel just because I was young and uh, ambitious, I suppose. And so I actually went to graduate school with this whole new almost trajectory that I didn't know about or didn't even consider until months prior. And it came to a head in the first semester of graduate school where I was like, I think I'm done. I'm going to drop out. This is not for me. I'm going to, you know, take a little bit of time, focus on my writing, maybe apply for an MFA and then just sort of start over. And something for some reason kept me in graduate school. I don't really know what the magnetism was, but I ended up reaching out to some folks, some writers who had PhDs and uh, were, you know, out in the world writing and asked them for advice. It was very earnest of me and very, you know, sort of bright eyed and bushy tailed. And all of them were just, you know, aghast at my thinking. They were just, they said, you know, you're young, you don't understand this, you need to stay in graduate school, you need to keep your health insurance, you need <laughs> to keep your stipend. And if you're bored with your project, you know, find something different, find something that will interest you. But being in graduate school is a perfect place to hide while you finish your, your book. And so I took their advice pretty seriously and, and stayed in graduate school and uh, changed my project completely. I was working on um, educational policy in, in late 19th century North India, and then decided I was going to work on Indian indenture in Fiji and Trinidad and kept working on my writing and publishing and kept working on the book. And one book led to another book, led to another book, led to another book. And then finally, you know, a little bit after graduate school, actually ended up with a manuscript for Mother Ocean, Father Nation. And that's where I am today. So just sort of a, a haphazard, I think like most careers, a haphazard sort of uh, path that finally led to a book. 
I have found in grad school that even if your goal is not sort of the tenure track professor academic path, it can be really hard to kind of stick to your guns in terms of what what it is that you want to do in the future and not sort of be pushed in that pushed is maybe the wrong word, but I don't know, go along with that direction. Was it hard for you to stay focused on on being a writer and especially a novelist? There definitely was, you know, I can't go more than a few days without writing. And that's been writing fiction, especially. Uh, So that's been something that's been with me for a long time. So that's always been part of my writing practice is to, you know, write at least a little bit every day. Otherwise, I feel thrown off. But I would say, you know, my fantasy of being a tenure track historian, you could really easily graph it where it peaks around year three of graduate school and then like precipitously falls and then ends up back where I started in year one by the time by year six. (laughs) I was actually pretty lucky in graduate school in that I had outside funding from this great fellowship called the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowship, which meant that, you know, I only taught for one year. And then after I came back from my field work, my advisor had moved from Columbia and New York to UC Berkeley. And so while I didn't transfer institutions, I was like a visiting student at Cal. Mm -hmm. So I was completely detached then from my cohort and my home institution, but was never really integrated into the Cal history department. So I was just sort of on my own for, from I guess year three to year six, I had no contact with anyone else. So (laughs) it made it actually very easy to consider myself like a writer. It was a very sort of fantasy life almost because I would just write every single day and it would either be my dissertation or it would be the book I was working on. And so I could just alternate between the two. And it, it, you know, I actually miss graduate school for that reason. It's the only time in my life, I think, where I get to, uh, where I was able to live that sort of dream writer life where all you have to do is write. That, that being said, you know, the anxieties and terrors and fears of graduate school were always there. So I'm not sure if I really want to go back, but I guess to answer your question, you know, there was always the magnetism towards the traditional path, but I think because I was in this sort of abandoned state, <laughs> it made it a little bit easier to to focus on my own writing. But in retrospect, it, it kind of meant that I wasn't going to be a historian because I was doing all like the conference papers and, you know, working with colleagues. I was just sort of almost the life of an independent scholar. When and where do you do your writing? This was a much easier question before I had children. <laughs> and sure that it was <laughs> really all <laughs> questions are easier to answer before you have children. Before I had children, it was always in the morning, usually for a couple hours every morning before work, really. And I am a writer that loves word count goals. So it'd be I had my two hours in the morning and you know, I have to get my five hundred words done. And if I get more than five hundred, that's great, but I have to at least get five hundred. And that was, you know, a really great way of writing. Ever since I've had children, it's, it's whatever little bit of time I could find in the day. So I am not picky about uh, when and where I get to write as long as I get to do it. So that means, you know, either home or coffee shops, which has become a, an option again after many years. Libraries. So really any place I could find a little scrap of, uh, not even quiet, a scrap of my own space. <laughs> and and a little bit of time to be able to to get those 500 words on the page. How do you do your writing or how do you approach it? Are you an outliner? Do you kind of wing it as you go? A little bit of both. I don't like going completely in the dark. I like to have some sense of where I'm going. So I'll often sketch a 
kind of a skeleton outline of either a chapter or more usually the whole arc of the story, which is always subject to change because with fiction, especially when you start writing, everything kind of goes out the window the moment you start writing. So it's it's almost like a, a little, like my little teddy bear almost to have an outline in front of me. It's just, it's a false sense of security. But then I am definitely an A to Z writer. I like to start in chapter one and end with the end. I know many writers pick and choose from different parts of the book and they'll write scenes as they come to them. I am definitely a, you know, Zadie Smith had this topology in, uh, in an essay or a speech she gave. and She divided writers into those who could, you know, pick and choose from moments and writers who need to start at the beginning and end at the end. And I am definitely <laughs> one of those. So it has its pros and cons, but I, I definitely like the sort of linearity in that method because it allows me to sort of think through the totality of a story before moving on to the most important part, which is revision. Because for me, all the writing really happens in revision. I think the word count goal actually ends up helping because it's like, just get the words on the page, just get it out, you know, get whatever first draft you have into the world, onto the computer, and then the real writing happens in revision. So you get to rewrite and discover new connections, think through character more deeply. Often by the time I reach the end, it's like I realize, oh, that's actually the primary motivation of the character. So now I get to go back and write that in. Or, you know, maybe that scene actually doesn't work because the climax is this, whereas I thought it was going to be something else when I did that outline. So it's often just like a race to get to that first draft. And then, you know, it's it's end drafts after that, you know, where N is a number between anything and infinity. How do you approach revision? Again, it's I still do it very linearly. I will start in the beginning and we'll read through. I always like to print out the whole thing and do the first revision by hand, just with a red Pilot V5 pen, my little totemic item. And if I often just have like a running list in the back of my head of connections or, or minor notes, and those I, for some reason, hold in my head until I get to that point in the in the manuscript, and then I finally get to write them down and put them on the page. It's a lot of faith in my own ability to keep my thoughts straight, which is, again, something I took for granted before I had children. Much <laughs> easier to keep all your thoughts, all your ducks in a row when you're not being thrown in, in, in various different directions. But so far, so good. I'm still able to keep you know, the running list in the back of my mind, which then comes out in a, in a revision process. And it's a lot of it is not only reading sort of silently, but I really love to read out loud, especially in that first draft. You catch so many missteps or clunky sentences or misconnections between paragraphs just by hearing yourself read your story back to, you know, aloud. Because a, a story is essentially an oral medium, even though it's it's on the page and people are reading in silence. It's very much rooted in sound. So having the uh, the chance to hear what I've written back to myself is is often part of that early revision process. Your work really involves a lot of research. How does that play into your writing process? Do you do all your research before you even start writing, or do you find yourself going back to research as you go? I like to do a bare minimum of research, especially now that I'm working on a new project. I kind of got to experience this in a more condensed format because this book came out of many years of research. And so there is a you know, there is a diving into secondary sources, forming like a very small bibliography, reading that, and maybe in parallel making a secondary list of, of fiction that I kind of want to engage in an intertextual way and reading through those. But it's it's not a lot. I don't want to do an exhaust, exhaustive 
research project because at the end of the day, and this is very different from writing history, the importance is not in systematically understanding the topic. The importance is, you know, story, like the story is the thing, right? And so I need to just sort of get my bearings and, and understand where I am. And then it's all about the writing from there on out. And once I'm really into, once I'm really on the page, research kind of happens in tandem because there's always questions. Some of the questions are extremely mundane. Like, you know, I was just writing something the other day where it was 1917 and I wondered if South Asians would be drinking tea at that point because, uh, had tea actually taken root in the subcontinent. In fact, it had not. So I had to, you know, get rid of a lot of, you know, Google books uh, and Google Scholar researching and then <laughs> determine that tea actually did not become a widespread beverage for, you know, about a decade later. So I had to take the tea out of the scene and replace it with something else. So there is that those sort of small questions, you know, Nabokov called them the divine details, but those, if you're writing in the past, those details have to come from someplace. So those that little bit of research will happen parallel to the writing. I'm really curious to hear about how you see the connection between your training as a historian and your work, particularly as a fiction writer. Does that inform the way that you write? It, it's it's that's the million dollar question for me. Sometimes <laughs> I just look back and I'm like, what is the connection? Why did I do a graduate degree in history? I think it's almost corny, but I I find myself thinking a lot about. It's a line early in Ibn Khaldun's Mukadma, which is, oh, I'm forgetting what century it was written. Was it, somebody's going to hear this and correct me. Was it 12th century? I'm not sure. But it's an old text about sort of the theory and philosophy of history. And early in the, in the book, he mentions something along the lines of how history uh, really gets at like a true philosophy of understanding people. And I really appreciate that part of my historical training because it was a way in which I was able to kind of just immerse myself in a long project of empathy because there's something that's just so otherized about the past. I mean, I think we take it for granted that, you know, there are human beings in the past and therefore we should be able to understand them for the most part, but the past is actually very unknowable unless you really try to empathize with the currents of the time, you know, thought, place. Uh, I mean, I, I think of it as story, you know, setting, character, and, and, and plot, but it's, it's the same sort of drive to really understand the past is to understand people, and to understand people is to write. So I feel like the, the sort of core kernel of my historical training really segues quite nicely into writing fiction. And then the other part is I think I just was introduced to a lot of cool stories that I don't think people write about either in fiction or in history. And it was just sort of reading widely and reading in the archive that introduced me to this great compendium of human sorrow and triumph that I think makes for great writing. And so I am very thankful to just being introduced to all this material that I would never have been able to see otherwise, which makes it seem like I'm instrumentalizing the archive or instrumentalizing secondary sources, which eh, maybe I am, but uh, I, I still am, am very grateful for that always. And so I think the ongoing question for me is, is I do want to thread the needle somehow. And, and I don't know, 
even if it's just for myself, like lay out a theory of the intersection between history and fiction. And I would love to like, I don't know, teach a course about that. Uh, I, I, in my spare time, for some reason, I have this like draft syllabus of <laughs> the archive and fiction. And it's something I will add and subtract text to. And it's this dream course that I don't know if it will ever present the opportunity to teach, but that is like the place in where I imagine everything becomes clear. And it's it's teaching that where I'll finally figure out what the connection really is. <laughs> oh, man, I love that. I want to take that course. Did you find, were there habits you had to unlearn from the PhD in order to be a successful novelist? I think there is there is one big habit. I think when writing either historically or, or writing for an academic audience, you really have to set the scene, so to speak. There's a lot of background and prehistory that you have to sort of engage with or, you know, the literature review before you get to the point. And so you're sort of, the point may not occur if you're writing a 20-page article till, till page 12 and you have 11 pages before that of just synopsis or background or, or what have you. And I would write, I think, if old drafts of this book had that inclination where it's just like the actual story would not start for page till page 50. It's like, here, I need to front load you with all the information. You need to understand exactly <laughs> where you are. And I think that was um, the historian in me. And I think it was, it was the writer Joyce Carol Oates who read something that I wrote. And she said, you have this sort of, she called it the ontic voice. Um, and it was this voice of authority. And she's like, I think that's the historian's voice. And you need to like move more towards your character's voice sort of leave the ontic voice behind. So I think those two, those two aspects of the writing as such, you know, the inclination towards backstory and the inclination towards like authority in, in tone and presentation um, were things I definitely had to unlearn. And Mother Ocean, Father Nation is told in a, in a third person close. So you have to really give up the sense of authority and universality and engage directly with what the characters are thinking. So that becomes a lot more unreliable in sort of the authorial voice that's being presented. Um, and that was something I definitely had to unlearn. Those are those are hard habits to break. The, the beginning of Mother Ocean was at one point, I think page 40 in a draft. <laughs> so I literally cut 40 pages and the heart of the beginning was very deep into the book. And so that was how bad my uh, addiction to background was, is that I buried the, the beginning of the, the book 40 pages in. That may be an answer to a question I had, but you know, your dissertation really is the research for the historical background of this book, it seems like. Did you feel like you knew too much? You know, did you, you know, have to kind of set aside the like massive amount of information that you learned in the process of doing the dissertation? It actually it became a problem because, well, the book is set in a fictional South Pacific island nation. And I had amassed an understanding of um, the post-colonial politics of Fiji, of Uganda, of the Indo-Caribbean, so Guyana and Trinidad, of a little bit of South Africa. And I had found bits of history from all those places to be quite compelling. But uh, it just doesn't, work that way in a historical timeline. You can't just put it in, say, Fiji, and then, you know, suddenly there's an Idi Amin type character, and, you know, it, do it just doesn't work out. So I had to sort of use that sort of massed information for my dissertation research and just put it in a 
made up place for lack of a better word in order to free myself from the like the the bonds of the historical timeline um i can now move things around it doesn't i don't have to have a fidelity to dates i don't have to have a fidelity to people i could just really take from all sorts of places and put it in one location uh and that was actually extremely freeing the moment i realized i could do that it's like i could take everything that i've learned over the last you know 6 years plus from when i started graduate school and and then synthesize it in a brand new way so i was really excited when that finally clicked into place that i didn't have to be beholden to history anymore that i could actually truly enter the space of fiction and and create and it it, it starts with politics and place and people but there's also you know very minor things that i don't know anyone will see in this book but you know <laughs> flora and fauna have been combined from all these countries so it's like if you you know know your snakes of guyana you'll know that you know there's a reference to the fer de lance snake which does not exist in the south pacific but only exists in uh northern south america so <laughs> uh it was just like this i think i went a little overboard and like i could combine places i can make a new place and, and so it really features in, in all parts of, of that world building to learn more about how he does that kind of world building i asked nishant to talk me through the opening to mother ocean father nation here's nishant reading the beginning of chapter one of the book It is announced with sadness that Ram Maharaj was burnt last night, the broadcast began. Bhumi looked at the red digits on her clock radio with a sense of dread. The South Pacific University had set a curfew earlier that day, and now Bhumi felt paralyzed by the evening's emptiness. A few hours ago, she had tried to find Arthi, but she wasn't in her dorm room, so Bhumi had gone back to lying on her bed, finding patterns in the foam of her drop ceiling. And now, at seven in the evening, a bell sounded three times on FM 93.6, Radio Zindagi. Radio Zindagi was the background hum of daily life for the island's Indian community. Growing up, Bhumi's weekday evenings were organized by the seven o'clock bells. And looking back, it was one of the few things they did together as a family. Bhumi, her brother Jaypal, and their parents gathered around to listen to the radio announcer, elegant in his use of pure Hindi, as opposed to the patois of the street. He would begin the program by announcing, It is announced with sadness that. Then he would list the quotidian deaths of Indians throughout the country. Farmers, school teachers, and politicians alike were featured when they passed on. After every name and summary of a life and family left behind, Bumi saw her parents nod their heads as if on this small island, they knew each and every person the announcer mentioned. Brevity was a single rule of broadcast. The announcements tended to focus on the sum total of life's accomplishments. He was a good husband, she a dutiful mother, loved by all, survived by so-and-so. For the past few days, instead of reading out the obituaries, the announcer had been talking about the missing, the ones the government said had been arrested yet couldn't be found in any jail. It was a jarring change, but everything had all gone to shit in the past couple weeks. Bhumi had arrived on the South Pacific University campus in August 1983, and now, at the end of her second year, it had all begun to fall apart. What goes into writing an opening like this? I think what was learned through many revisions was that, you know, I really wanted to start the reader in the place. They need to, you know, I didn't want to futz with 
exposition. I just wanted to start them at the moment of action. And so the moment of action in this case is this announcement during the coup, um, this sort of ominous radio program. And so you get that sense that something is wrong wherever you are. And I think, you know, I mentioned this previously before, this is, you know, at page 40. And so there was a lot of like, this is the history of colonialism. This is the history of the, the island. And this is the history of the family. And instead it's like, I just wanted to get the reader as quickly as possible in the moment to just start the story off and really get the, the gears running. I think it, it took a, a while to learn that you only have a first shot to get someone hooked into a, into a narrative. And so that realization to start as quickly as possible only came through a lot, a lot of revision. <laughs> These paragraphs really are doing so much. You know, they seem perhaps at the surface to a reader, I don't want to say simple, but straightforward. But really, when you start looking at them, you know, there's the present scene that you're setting here. There's a little bit of sort of context, both historical and cultural. We meet some of the characters, at least in passing. And then you also have the sense that something big is happening. Something is changing here. Does it take revision to make that all come together in, in such a tight opening? Or, or do you do that just naturally? I wish I did it naturally. That would make me a much better writer, probably much more productive. <laughs> um, I think it was John Gardner who said that exposition has to be just the briefest amount of information for the reader to understand the scene in front of them. And that's very easy to read from him and, and took a lot to actually internalize. In this case, I'm just going to take a look at it. We start, I'm going to dissect my own reading. <laughs> we start with the, the sort of announcement from the, the radio broadcaster. And that sort of tells you that there's, you know, we're in a place with Indians. But then immediately the South Pacific University is mentioned. So, oh, in fact, we're not in India or the United States or anywhere in the West that we might recognize. And so it's just these sort of small signposts that guide the reader towards where we are. I think before it was like, here's big signpost and this is where we are. And so it's learning how to signpost in the smallest, most subtle way to guide the reader towards exactly what they need to know to understand, you know, exactly what the, the action that's happening in this scene. How do you come to have Joyce Carol Oates giving you feedback on your writing? This was, so uh, this was when I was at Cal and she had retired from teaching at Princeton and at the time was splitting her time between teaching one semester at NYU and one semester at uh, UC Berkeley, where she mainly taught undergraduates. And I think I saw that she was teaching a, a writing workshop and I immediately signed up, even though I, I technically was not allowed to. And I did not even know if I could sign up for courses because no one explained what my status was as like a visiting, quote unquote, visiting scholar. No one told me what that actually meant. But I I signed up and and it was she had to read a story of yours to to let you in the class. And I remember on the first day, she had said, uh, I'm a great fan of your writing. And I think I melted when I heard that because <laughs> sure. I'd never taken a workshop before. Um, I had never interacted with writers of a large stature. And so that was, that was like a very special workshop for me. And there's a sort of like lesson in persistence. I think, you know, the one thing that, that writing for a while has taught me is that you just stay in touch with people, uh, even if it's just for, even if it feels like kind of hackneyed and, and awkward. Uh, and so I, I did stay in touch with, with Joyce and she's been a great, um, sort of presence in my, in my writing career ever since she's always been very supportive of my work. And so I feel very lucky to, 
to have built that sort of relationship with her. So luck, I feel like it's so much of our life just boils down <laughs> to luck and persistence. And so I think in this case, it was, it was both. <laughs> You've also um, written essays for more sort of popular audiences. How is the approach to writing an essay different than the approach to writing fiction? That's a difficult question. <laughs> I guess I'll answer it in a sort of roundabout way. And that for one, I love writing little essays, especially when I'm working on a bigger project because it, it becomes a break. It's a 2000 word break from whatever I'm immersed in. And I've often dreamed, my dream job I think is dilettante. I think it was one of those things that kind of drove me away from academic history just a little bit was this realization that I'd have to write about one subject. And I know historians do change their topics, especially post-tenure when they're given a little bit more freedom. You know, they, they start, you know, really exploring subject matter that may not been, may not hew very closely to their, their graduate degree. But it was just this idea of staring down a career where it had to be, say, a South Asianist for the next 30 years. It's like, well, I want to write a little bit about this, a little bit. I want to write about food. I want to write about, you know, you know, the craft of writing. And so I do think it just is that, that nice little dilettante break from, from being focused on one thing. Uh, and it's funny because I'm just, just coming off a period where I've written four essays in a row. When you publish a book, you often write a lot of essays to sort of, you know, get people to pay attention to you. So I just have written in the last week about a wide variety of topics ranging from Uganda to climate change to Philip Glass. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think to actually get at your question, it is embracing that sort of dilettante vibe. And one, realizing that you're not going to be an expert about anything, but I think people read essays because they like your voice and they like the spin that you're putting on whatever subject matter. The greatest realization I had about writing historical popular essays was I didn't need to make an argument. You just have to tell an interesting story. I think that's the biggest difference, not between writing fiction and writing essays, but writing maybe historical essays and writing popular essays. Is it's all about the story. Nobody cares about your argument in The New Yorker. I'd sound like I'm writing in The New Yorker, but at least I think nobody cares about uh, your argument if you're writing in The New Yorker. But they just want to find something that's grounded in character and is interesting, which I think is for many historians, not necessarily how they were taught to write. Grounding something in character, you know, I was very much in an academic program that grounded things in concepts. So state power, you know, governmentality, these like big topics that have no human being to make it a little bit more fun to read, for lack of a better <laughs> way to put it. So it is, that was like a very freeing realization that I didn't have to, you know, add to the scholarship. I could just write the story because I think you take for granted when you're deep into a historical, either your historical training or your historical practice that everybody knows the story because you're surrounded by people who know the story. You're, you're giving talks at conferences where everyone knows the story, unless you're one of the few people who like discovered a new archive. But mainly if you're, if you're, if you're making a new argument, it's just that you're making a new argument. But it's that, it's that reminder that 99.9% .9 of the world has no idea what you're talking about. So you get to start back from brass tacks and just, you know, weave a tale. And that's really fun, I think. I really like that. I have not answered at all your question about the difference between writing fiction and writing essays. But I think that the, the actual mechanics are very similar. 
Um, and I've kind of been driving at that a little bit and that the, the basis of a good essay is story and character. And so that is, you know, the same thing for uh, a good work of fiction is that you have a narrative that guides the reader. You have characters that are compelling and it's all uh, woven together in a, in a story that captures the reader's attention. And so with an essay, you're ostensibly doing that in the the real world. I say ostensibly because the more you read about like the craft of nonfiction and especially creative nonfiction, you see that many writers have a somewhat loose relationship to reality. <laughs> but uh, you are, you know, grounding that story in in the world around. But otherwise, I think it's it's the same lessons from from writing fiction apply to those essays, which is to say. Again, it's unlearning a lot of historical writing and learning a sort of different set of tools. But I think you get to take all the cool stuff from history that uh, may be in like your introduction, your introductory paragraphs and turning that into, you know, a longer, more elegant presentation that's just fun rather than consumed with the anxiety of producing something novel. Are there ways that you deliberately work on your writing craft? You've mentioned a few books and, and articles about craft in in passing. I think the best way to learn how to write is to just read the books that you love, but then read them with a critical eye, just always asking the question, well, how do they do that? How is that possible? How does it sound the way it sounds? I think that is a very different way from reading uh, fiction, which is often passively for entertainment. It's then taking, you know, your pen or pencil and bringing that to the page that you're reading and underlining, circling, asking yourself questions. There's a lot of marginalia in my books, which is often very embarrassing because they're all notes to myself. So I don't let anyone borrow my books because it's just almost like handing someone a journal. It's like, I, you don't get to see my thought process. You don't get to see the questions I ask myself. These books are mine. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and I think I've, I've actually let my wife borrow some of my books and she just finds it distracting because it's like there'll be pages where 75% is underlined or circled and there are arrows and notes. And so I think that that sort of practice of critical reading really helps. And it also, you know, becomes goal setting in its own right. You know, it's like I admire this writer so much and I want to see how she did it. And so I'm going to really study her work and I'm going to try my best to achieve the greatness that, that she has. And then I think like over the course of writing for many years, you just accumulate all these <laughs> these pithy quotes for some reason that you could just like sort of deploy at random points it's like oh yeah Nabokov said this oh yeah John Gardner said this where I actually found those original quotes I can <laughs> tell you they were absorbed somewhere somehow and then like brought deep into my psyche such that like I see them as rules to live by maybe but I have no idea how they ended up there <laughs> <laughs> So who do you read for inspiration? From For Mother Ocean, Father Nation, there was uh, a few that I, I really turned to. Han Kong, who wrote uh, The Vegetarian, also wrote a book called Human Acts, which is set in South Korea during a labor uprising. It is a, it is a moving, sometimes brutal book that really engaged deeply with politics while also staying close to like the human spirit, for example. And I thought to myself, if I could, you know, be a tenth as good as this book, you know, then I'll, I've accomplished something. So I really loved reading and rereading Human Acts. 
it's funny because in, in this book, I really wanted to focus a little bit on um, kind of the persistence of desire, especially in crisis situations. And I didn't want desire, be it sexual desire or, you know, just desire for real relationships to fall to the wayside just because, you know, bad things are happening in the world. And it was um, Chris Krause's I Love Dick for some reason that made me think closely about sort of the manifest nature of desire. And that's like very unrelated to this book. It's set in sort of like an artistic academic milieu. And um, it's more about, you know, female objection and desire. But I, it was just the way in which she dealt with it was brilliant. I mean, there's there's that. But I really, um, it kind of just made me focus a little bit on the importance of desire in our in our actions. So it was not something that I really anticipated seeing as an inspiration. I think I just picked it up at the bookstore once, but I was like, actually, this is genius. This is great. And then I think like, so a lot of people have asked me, you, whenever you write about Indians in a diaspora, especially a labor diaspora, people ask about your opinions about Naipaul. And in, in my case, actually, I like his work. I'm not sure I like him as a human being, but I don't think anyone does, uh, especially given the revelations about his you know, abusive relationship with his, a wom the woman who is not his wife, uh, his mistress, I suppose. Uh, but like, I think it's because I came from a sort of academic post-colonial background that works like the Mimic Men were very important for me to conceptualize sort of the, almost the satire of post-colonial governance. And so I think he really hit the nail on the head in books like that. So I think in terms of, of books for influence, you end up just it becomes a laundry list of book after book after book after book. But those three in particular, just at this very moment, come to mind for for works that I, I look towards when writing Mother Ocean. What's the best writing advice you've ever gotten? I'm not sure. So this is advice that wasn't given to me, but again, is one of those things that I've collected and I have no idea how I've collected it. It was from Toni Morrison, who in an interview mentioned that the and she didn't use the word happy but i think she used the word fulfilled the most fulfilled she felt was when she was writing when she was inside a project uh she said that the world loses a little bit of color when she's not writing and i think just the if there is advice to be gleaned from that it's to always immerse yourself in, in writing because i i do understand that i do feel a little bit glum when i am not able to be inside a project and when you know there's nothing to write i feel like when i finished the final edits for mother ocean before it went off into copy editing i lasted three weeks before i was like i need to start a new book <laughs> and then i started a new book <laughs> because it was just such a weird feeling and i know there are writers who find the task of writing to actually be extremely difficult and there's a lot of grousing that could happen. But to me, it's the only, it's like the only good part. And to really embrace the fact that it's the only good part is I think the best advice that I've tried to internalize. That like everything else is just a series of anxieties sandwiched upon fears. And, but the writing is the only space of freedom. I am hesitating to use the word happy or joy because I don't know if it's happy or joyful because it is difficult. It's very hard. But it is, it does give the day a rhythm and it gives a sense of purpose. And it just, 
it really is a gift to be able to sit for as many hours as one can in a day and think about people other than oneself and be able to write their stories. And I think that to just embrace that is perhaps the best advice I've, I've gotten. Are you, do you consider yourself part of a writing community? Are there people you turn to for feedback? I am, I think, well, because of COVID, all of our writing, our, our physical communities have been curtailed quite a bit. I remember when I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I uh, reached out to the writer Lydia Kiesling, who at the time lived in San Francisco, and uh, we got a coffee. And she said something that, that I'll always remember, which is that writers need coworkers too. And so it's just like, I think I was sort of feeling embarrassed that I reached out and I was so desperate for human contact that I was apologizing for asking her to have a coffee. <laughs> And she was just, she just said, no, all writers need coworkers too. You need to talk shop. You need to gossip a little bit. You need to blow off steam. And I think fighting, finding writers where you could have that sort of coworker relationship is, is really super important, I think, for one's mental health. And I say all that, but you know, I moved to Buffalo with my, I live in Buffalo, New York now. And we moved here January, 2020 which is like the worst time in retrospect to move anywhere. So I have yet to be able to find my writing community here um, in Western New York. I hope that will change soon because it, it is nice to have that sort of more quotidian relationship to, to other writers. When I was in the Bay Area, I was in this, this community called the Headland Center for the Arts. And, you know, we would just have dinner and we'd work in our studios independently, but then we'd come together from time to time. And it was just nice to have that sort of routine interaction. I hope I could, you know, have that again one day. Well, can I ask you what you're working on now? So right now I'm working on another novel. And this one is completely different from Mother Ocean, Father Nation. It's actually set in 1917 in, uh, on the West Coast of California, where there, you know, actually were Indian revolutionaries who came to join up with other revolutionary workers. So there were a lot of uh, Sikh farm workers in North uh, Northern California, and then there were just a lot of um, mainly Bengali intellectuals who came and and were on and around the UC Berkeley and Stanford campuses, and they were just you know as one does trying to plot the overthrow of the British Empire in South Asia. They were being followed by British spies most of the time. There's this very you know there's already you could already see the elements of a book right there. Um, and so I was drawn to the fact that many of these men fell in love while they were in California and they married across racial lines. They married white women. This was a time when interracial marriage was not legal across the United States. This was a time of great anti-Asian sentiment. So it was not being uh, a South Asian in California was not sort of a welcome identity and, and being Asian in the United States at the time was definitely quite dangerous. Um, and so I was really drawn to one that sort of spy story that's being told, and two, the the love stories that were that were being you know made at the time, and this was all right before World War One. And so when the war broke out, many of these um, people were branded as traitors, they were branded as German spies, they were rounded up, they were arrested without due process, and so the story kind of finds its its bearings in this very heady and exciting time in American history that I don't think many people know about. And this is again one of those things where. I knew this story. I knew the story very well because I'd heard it so many times in so many different books or seminars. And I just, one of those things you assume that everyone knows something about, but then you learn that not many people outside your small community of scholars knows about this. And in fact, they're very interesting stories to be told. 
Well, thank you so much. This is really great. So interesting to hear from someone trained as a historian working working in the fiction world. Well, thanks for having me. It was really great to talk to you today. Thanks again to Nishant Bacha for joining me on this episode of Drafting the Past. And thanks to you for listening. You can find a link to Nishant's book, Mother Ocean, Father Nation, and other subjects we discussed at draftingthepast.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast app to help spread the word. Until then, happy writing. <laughs>